Yo, you got a problem with the schedule? Blame our assistant Mandy. She put all the NG back to back while eating fistfuls of candy. Just a little something I'm working on for me and my friend Vanilla Ice. Putting out a new album, you know. You can check us out on iTunes. This episode is sponsored by Frontend Masters. They have a terrific lineup of live courses you can attend either online or in person. Their upcoming course is JavaScript Framework Showdown with Brian Holt from Reddit. You can also get recordings of their previous shows like JavaScript The Good Parts, AngularJS, CSS3 In-Depth, and Responsive Web Design. Get it all at frontendmasters.com. This episode is sponsored by Watch Me Code. Have you been looking for regular, high-quality video screencasts on building JavaScript done by someone who really understands JavaScript? Derek Bailey's videos cover many of the topics we talk about on JavaScript Jabber and are up on the latest tools and tricks you need to write great JavaScript. He also covers language fundamentals, so there's plenty for everybody. Looking over the catalog, I got really excited, and I can't wait to watch them all. Go check them out at javascriptjabber.com slash watchmecode. This episode is sponsored by Component One, makers of Widgmo. If you need stunning UI elements or awesome graphs and charts, then go to widgmo.com and check them out. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 111 of the JavaScript Jabber Show. This week on our panel, we have Merrick Christensen. Hey, guys. Jameson Dance. Hello, friends. Aaron Frost. Hello. AJ O'Neill. Yo, yo, yo. Coming at you live from my bedroom. Joe Eames. Hey there. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And this week, we have a special guest, and that is Eric Bryn. Hello. Thanks for having me. So you are coming to us from uh, the wilds of JSConf, aren't you? Yes, I just arrived here in Amelia Island, Florida, or about uh, noon, and drove my rental car a little too far. I ended up in Georgia, but <laughs> circled back. A little bit too far. Unfortunately, T-Mobile does not have very good reception here, so I was wandering a little aimlessly. But I've made it to the hotel, hung out by the pool, met up with some of my friends, and uh, now I am secluded in my hotel room talking to you kind folks. Well, thank you for coming awesome. on the show, man. Yeah, well, I'm glad to be here. So, can you tell us a little about your background? Obviously, you're a core member of the Ember.js project. How'd you get there? Yeah, that sure. Kind of thing? Sure. So, I've been doing web development most of my career. I was a Rails developer back in the days, kind of got on the Rails bandwagon from uh, PHP. You know, I don't think that's an unusual progression. I was writing a big PHP app, you know, found that I was writing spaghetti code. Rails came out, jumped on that. Uh, that really, you know, leveled me up. And then I found myself getting to the point where I was starting to build richer and richer web applications or trying to and wanted to, but was really having trouble with, you know, organizing my code. And, you know, it was basically just writing jQuery spaghetti and layering in, you know, client side rendering here or there. And then I went to just kind of randomly went to a JavaScript event at Google and saw actually Yehuda Katz, one of the creators of Ember, talk about some ideas around handlebars and data binding. And this was actually before, this is probably like nine months before Ember, but which was then Sprout Core 2 got, like the first alpha got released. And I talked to him afterwards and I was like, oh my God, this data binding thing, this seems awesome. I want it. Let me help. And so basically uh, I waited and waited and eventually the first alpha came out and basically I happen to be in the position to be uh, consulting at the time. And so I basically only uh, consulted half time and then started working and playing with Ember with the other half of my time. And, you know, eventually I wrapped my head around it and then ended up as uh, one of the first, you know, people added to the core team. Awesome. So you went from kind of an early adopter to a core team member. Yeah. And so like kind of crazy because I actually like wrote, I sucked at JavaScript. You know, I didn't really know much about JavaScript and getting involved in Ember was what really leveled me up JavaScript wise. I mean, you know, I knew jQuery. I would consider myself a jQuery developer, you know, or a Rails developer with some jQuery knowledge and, you know, really didn't take JavaScript seriously. Uh, like I think, you know, most backend engineers of yesteryear, or perhaps even today, some people don't really take JavaScript seriously, but I've been really lucky for pretty much the last two and a half years. I've been actually doing like full-time Ember work uh, with a bunch of different consulting clients. And, you know, basically nowadays I live purely in client-side JavaScript land and try to avoid touching the backend if I can. 
which has been really a treat. And I've learned tons about JavaScript and how JavaScript actually is implemented in V8 because I do a lot of performance related stuff in Emberland. So, sure. so yeah, it's, it's been amazing. I, it feels like a, uh, you know, like a whole different world than where I was three years ago. And it, and it all is thanks to just getting involved in an open source project, you know? Sure. So you'd recommend writing a client-side MVC framework as a way to learn JavaScript then? <laughs> <laughs> an open source one, no less. I would, I would yep. say, you know, sometimes I would say, like, actually, when you get started out, you know, it's good to be in a room full of smart people, you know, and that's the easy, that's the quickest way to learn. So I actually skipped the backbone, you know. Era. I skipped the backbone era. I went straight to Ember. And I've actually, like, gone back and tried playing with backbone now. And it's like... It's really difficult to write a backbone app because I, I have to do so much work that, you know, I've been spoiled by Ember basically. And so I think it's nice to actually have seen, you know, it's nice to kind of learn nicer ways of doing things from people that have learned those lessons. And then, you know, I consider myself lucky that I got to kind of skip that era. Sure. So what part of uh, Ember JS do you work on the uh, most? Like what part interests you the most? Well, I mean, I kind of work on all different parts of it. I actually think now after, you know, getting close to two, three years, I have almost the whole code base in my head. So I'm actually able to, and I actually know, have the mental models around that as well. So I actually can reason about how things should work and how everything, you know, works together. And so I actually consider myself a generalist, but I would say most people know me for my work on performance. So I work oh. uh, with a fellow core team member, Chris Selden. You know, him and I basically are kind of the performance gurus on the core team. And we're actually working on this thing called HTML bars, which is one of the, you know, kind of big evolutions happening in Emberland today. We've actually like kind of looked back at how our view layer has turned out over the last couple of years. And we've basically found new primitives and new new ways of solving the same problems that are way simpler and significantly faster than they were. So we're still in progress. We're shooting for like getting it in the 1.8 version of Ember, which is going to be in like mid-July, I think, now. But basically, uh, we're looking at 2 to 3x performance boosts, and that's just like drop in all of a sudden everyone's Ember apps render 2 to 3 times faster. Oh, that's so, beautiful. So oh, how does it work? That. Yeah, yeah. I was going to ask, can you talk a little bit more about what does it HTML bars yeah. is and how it works? Yeah, so HTML bars has kind of become like a blanket term for many, many optimizations and a complete like rewrite of our view layer. But basically, the HTML bars itself describes a move towards using templates that build DOM rather than build strings. And so HTML bars is kind of a riff on handlebars, the name. And so it's actually, it's built on top of handlebars. So it uses like the handlebars parser and it's handlebar syntax. But instead of ending up with a big string that you end up inner HTMLing into your page, it actually builds up a document fragment and then you append that document fragment to the page. And so we've seen significant performance gains by using DOM building. And we've also got some really clever like strategies for how we how we kind of like clone that dom so that like for example an easy description would be like when you're looping over an array of things in a template and you're outputting them we actually like only build the dom once and then we deeply clone it for each iteration and that like turned out to be i think like give us a an extra like 30 percent edge over not having that strategy and then i think most of the actual like performance and interesting developments are actually in the rewritten view layer. And so basically where we've got, you know, a lot of croft in the existing view layer that's kind of built up over the years. And we, you know, it's kind of been an iteratively developed thing. And now that we basically know the, you know, the full API surface, a high enough level API, we can actually like go in and completely rewrite the internals and you know, to people consuming the APIs, they don't know the difference. And so that's how we've been able to get the majority of our performance gains. Uh, so it so, hasn't really been from the switch to string-based to DOM-based templating? That's been... Or, so I mean, string, it sounds so like that's helped, but it ha that hasn't yeah, been... Yeah, so that helps. Game. So that helps. I mean, to be honest, I don't have, like, exact numbers on, like, sure. the difference because we've actually been working on them both together. 
So it's hard to say exactly. I'm kind of going off of my gut, which is, you know, when you're doing performance work, a pretty dumb thing to do. But anyways, <laughs> but basically, I mean, actually, I'm not totally going off my gut. I've done different view layer, you know, evolutions before the one that we've landed on currently. And so I kind of know where, you know, the overhead is. But basically, what we were seeing with string based templates was a lot of garbage collection, uh, a lot of gar GC pauses due to like these big strings, like megabytes of string, you know, HTML string that basically get built up upon like the initial rendering of an application. And then we basically throw that string away by inner HTMLing it. And, you know, it just creates a lot of memory pressure, which leads to a lot of GC pauses. And so building DOM directly rather than having like a string, you know, intermediate representation kind of just makes sense. Typically in JavaScript, doing less work means that it's going to be faster. So in my mind, building DOM directly now that it's actually performant in modern browsers is actually advantageous. It removes an unnecessary step in the middle, basically. So historically, we used to build the DOM, you know, for, to up, build up DOM fragments a lot before string-based templating was kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I know maintainability was a big part of that. People saying, well, you don't want, you know, your HTML construction and your JS and, and so on and so forth. But it seemed like people were making a performance case for it as well. So is there something different to the technique of building up a DOM fragment or how you're doing it now than... Yeah, that? so I think that actually using HTML bars as templates to build that actually like create you your kind of imperative DOM building code are actually faster than doing them yourself. And the reason for that is twofold, I think. One of which is that we actually do this like caching of the fragment and deep cloning. And so obviously, if you did that yourself, you could get the same kind of optimizations. But this is something that you kind of just get for free. And then the other thing is that in handlebars, every block becomes like one of these cached fragments. And so upon like further execution, you, you get to take advantage of this for free, basically. You don't have to think about, you know, if you were building the DOM yourself, you would have to be thinking about, you know, that more intently, whereas it's kind of just a side effect of using, you know, HTML bars now. Um, sure. And so, you know, I think ultimately the allure of template libraries is like HTML bars, handlebars, whatever, is that you get to just write HTML like you would normally for a static web page. And therefore, it's easier to glance at and reason about what's happening, right? Whereas, you know, soup, JavaScript soup of like building up a DOM node hierarchy is a lot harder for somebody to come look at, you know, that didn't write it before. I always tend to prefer DSLs to things, you know, over, so like writing, having HTML is a DSL for itself, right? And if you end up building it in, JavaScript programmatically, it, it kind of loses some of the clarity there, I think. Sure. So here's a naive question that will help me understand the difference. If I pass a string of HTML to a, like a jQuery, it'll give me back a document fragment, right? Yeah. What is Ember doing in addition to that? It sounds like when you see it each loop or a case where a given representation is used multiple times, you store a reference to it and, and so, cache it. Well, so the difference is, is that we don't, we don't, we're never passing a, just a string of markup to anything, right? Like our templates actually get compiled into JavaScript code that build up the markup. Got it. Okay. So it's like, if you look at the output, it's like document.create. Okay. So it never actually happens at runtime. What you actually ship in your app is the JS that constructs exactly fragments. Okay. Exactly. Okay, that makes more sense. So you have like almost a, a pre-compile phase. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. Okay. It works both ways, but it's definitely more performant to have a pre-compile phase. Sure. Uh, that makes a ton more sense than yeah. where you're gonna okay. Yep. So one of my questions about this is where do web components fit into this? Do you like if your compiler runs through and it sees some special uh, Ember component tag, what does that do? Does that defer out to some other compiled function? How does that work? So basically, we've been, you know, HTML bars has kind of been, you know, done for multiple reasons. The one that I've been most interested in has been the performance aspect. But actually, it was done to enable better syntax as well. So like right now, we have these things like called bind adder, 
And it's because, you know, it's ambiguous to a string-based templating language, like where a mustache is actually being emitted. Now we know exactly where you're emitting mustaches and stuff with HTML bars. But the big kind of like sleeper feature that we haven't really promoted much was that if you're familiar with the way that Ember components work now, you don't actually end up using like the standard dasherized HTML tag. You end up using like a mustache version of that. And so actually the plan all along with HTML bars has been to actually enable plain HTML style web components that, you know, would look like Angular element directives or whatever, right? Can you expand um, that a little more for people who maybe aren't familiar with what you mean by the standard Ember component syntax? Yeah, sorry. So it, typically in Ember, you have to use curlies. So you would use like the mustaches, my dash component, and then pass things in as like, um, basically they look like handlebars helpers, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas now with HTML bars, they're just plain HTML. And so they look exactly like they would look if you were using Polymer, mm. right? Does that make Got sense? Got it, yes. Yep. So yeah, in theory, that gives Ember a terrific interop story for web components coming in the future. Yeah. yeah, so the trick to this, the plan has been, how can we give people web components today before the browsers actually support them? And so that's what HTML bars enables us to do is because we can give people, you know, custom elements basically in IE6 because we don't actually rely on the platform features to enable this because we're able to do this as like a pre-compilation and, you know, runtime kind of step and not something that is, you know, it doesn't actually end up as an HTML tag in the emitted output. It actually is, it turns into, you know, an Ember component before it actually gets put into the DOM. So it doesn't actually rely on, you know, things like document.register existing on the browser yet. Sure. And so the nice thing about this is that you don't need polyfills to do this stuff today. And, you know, you might think, oh, well, what's wrong with the polyfills? The problem with the polyfills tend to be that they're not actually very performant and they're not actually ready for production use today. So you're taking a bit of a risk, you know, using, you know, existing polyfills for this stuff. And we've been able to basically implement it in user land for you. So that's kind of one of the nice things about what we bring, what HTML bars and Ember are bringing to web components. And so there's going to be a lot. We're going to have some more announcements around, you know, how Ember is going to make building web components easier for people today in the coming months. But I'll drop a hint, which is that we're basically working on enabling people to build components using the Ember style APIs and HTML bars templates without actually needing all of Ember to be able to take advantage of that stuff. That's awesome. And that is cool. So my question is, is how do you like, say you wanted to run in an environment where there are custom elements registered? Can you guys run sure. a concert or is it a buy-in? Yep. To nope. We're going to work with, if the browser has that ability, you can use a combination of both. Cool. But we won't necessarily for now use like the underlying, you know, new APIs because we are, you know, using user land technologies to do it. And we want that code to work across browsers. Right. That sure. do not have that. Right. Because most of the people that are building an Ember app today need to like support, you know, IE8 or whatever, or even, you know, we support still IE6. So I definitely know people that have Ember apps running on like IE7 still. And so we take browser support pretty seriously and we want to give people these new productive tools on the existing platforms that they have to support. And then as time goes by and, you know, the evergreen browsers start shipping more and more of these features, then eventually we'll start having like, you know, different builds of Ember perhaps that like would just use the underlying web components APIs, you know, when they're solidified versus just doing them, you know, in our user land sure. strategy way. So while we're still so, on performance, I just want to ask this really quickly. Sure. Were there people building apps that were having problems with performance before that this actually solves? Or is this just going to make it snappier and people are going to oh, feel it? So, but yeah. Okay. So I think it's an inevitability that when you're building client side apps that you're going to have performance problems. There's always a limit to how much, you know, memory you can consume, how much DOM you can have, you know, in the do document. And, you know, there's always an upper limit. 
And I think right now our upper limit is lower than we would like it to be. And HTML bars is going to like raise it, you know, by two or three X. Okay. Uh, so that basically you can have, you know, you can render more without having to worry about performance as much. But yes, we do have like, you know, I don't think it's uncommon, you know, even in things like Angular, where you basically, when you're rendering large lists of data, it can take seconds, you know, on this order of seconds to render things. And so we've got things in Ember right now that help like, you know, work around some of these performance constraints, things like the Ember list view which is basically like iOS or OSX's uh, table view, which it recycles rows. So like you're actually only putting in DOM the things that you can actually see on the page. And then as you scroll, it actually like moves the rows, you know, in the scroll direction to make it seem like all of the data is actually rendered. Does that make sense? Yep. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty common technique. But yeah, so we're definitely like Ember is pretty darn fast today. But when it comes to like rendering, you know, a thousand or two thousand, you know, rows on a in like a table or something, it starts to get sluggish. And so, you know, we want that to be more on the order of like we want it to start getting sluggish in the tens of thousands. And so that's what we're shooting for. It seems like you could always hit a bottleneck no matter how fast you're it was. Always, if it yeah, was like faster said, with that, then people would throw. Honestly, I do a lot of like Ember consulting and like I've done performance debugging a ton. And I consider like HTML bars is partially like, you know, my way of putting myself out of business because I'm tired of like doing that same work <laughs> over and over again. But the thing is, actually, most of the performance problems I see are via jQuery plugins. Uh, <laughs> people put people put like, you know, some kind of like jQuery plugin in each row of a large list. And then they end up like doing, you know, the jQuery plugin causes like forces layout, you know, and like does all this stuff. You know, I've seen like ones where they measure text and like automatically shrink the size of the text and you have one of those in each row. And so basically it just is insane, uh, the amount of work. I've seen like those plugins take what was a table that would render in like five seconds normally, a large table, slow it down to 10 minutes. Oh, well. Oh my gosh. Yes. So like just insane, insane amount of churn, you know, happening. Wait for page. So, yeah. So. <laughs> There was 10 minutes fall on that performance blows, chart that Ilya Gregorik shows. <laughs> it basically Wait just blows page. up for, and just freezes the browser for minutes. So yeah, you know, I think ultimately if you're building JavaScript client side apps, you need to like, there is always an upper bound, you know, and a lot of the times if you're hitting that upper bound, you might want to like rethink your UI. Like some user interfaces shouldn't probably show 10,000, you know, rows in a table. But usually these things like are the more legitimate cases are like when you're building SVG graphs and you're like building, you have like tons and tons of SVG tags on the page to like render some, you know, chart with a lot of data points. You know, that is kind of legit. But basically what you end up doing is at some point you reach a limit with SVG and then you have to go start rendering with Canvas, right? Because the... Yes, you can't deal with the DOM that, SVG. Yeah. It seems like... The thing with performance works and eliminating bottlenecks is that there's always another bottleneck beyond the horizon. But the (laughs) things you can do, like you're never done with it. But what you're doing is enabling people to do different things that were not possible when the previous bottleneck existed. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I always think of like the risk of building, you know, when people like come to me and ask me like native versus web type questions. This is like one of the things about the web where it's like there are going to be performance constraints due to like missing features in the platform maybe or features that are harder to implement because to actually implement them is inefficient, you know, programmatically or whatever or in the, you know, browser runtime or V8 or whatever. Whereas like when you're writing a native app, like you can just drop down and write C or assembly, right? And like basically your constraint is the device's power, right? And so there's always constraints. Our iOS apps aren't even like that fast all the time, right? Like there's laggy scrolling in a lot of native apps, but you know, ultimately what we're trying to do, right, is just enable people to build apps and not have to worry about its performance as much. And so we are able to do that with Ember kind of by providing those, you know, the framework and telling people to write their apps in a certain way. And perhaps, you know, since everybody's kind of writing their apps in the same way, if we see common performance gotchas, you know, we can perhaps try mending them in the framework themselves. And then basically everybody gets better performance for free. HTML bars is, is kind of an example of that. 
But that's kind of one of the nice things about having shared solutions is that when the community makes, you know, big uh, leaps, we get to make them together rather than like it mattering which, you know, libraries you happen to be using in your project and, you know, sure, more of them. So, oh, sorry, did I cut you off? No worries. I just wanted to ask about web components in general. So we talked a lot about the work Ember is doing to enable components and make them better. Can you talk about why I should care? There might be people that don't really know what web components are, why they help, or why they should be excited about that. So we've kind of had, you know, I've kind of been living in a world of web components for the last several years. Like, they haven't been web components, but in Ember we have something similar to web components, like basically similar functionality. And when the uh, web component specs came, you know, started becoming popular and, you know, people started talking about them and it seemed like they were actually on a path towards implementation, you know, we made some tweaks to the framework to be more web component friendly. But why web components? Well, basically what web components bring is a new alternative to the, what I consider very dangerous style of programming that we've been doing on the web, which I refer to as selector-based programming. And basically, web components give us a simple declarative way of describing markup, CSS, and JavaScript in reusable chunks and being able to like use them in our web pages or web applications very easily. And so that specifically, you know, comes via the custom element, right? So you have a custom element and you can provide basically the class definition for that custom element. And then that there are conventions for, or I should say there are hooks for, you know, putting that JavaScript logic that you previously were wrapping up inside of maybe like a jQuery plugin. Things like I've been instantiated, I've been added to the DOM, I've been removed from the DOM, or I've been destroyed. And so now there's going to be a standard place where everybody can put that stuff. And then also we are going to have a connection now, a strong connection between that DOM and that JavaScript code. Whereas typically with jQuery plugins or, you know, the selector based programming model of the web, which we still, you know, live in today, you end up creating arbitrary markup and then you end up using selectors in your JavaScript code. It's kind of a weak, you know, kind of connection between the, the markup and the actual like JavaScript code. And that JavaScript code is going and doing something to those, to that DOM that, you know, it's selecting. And hopefully nobody messes with the names of those things because inadvertently they could actually, you know, start causing that, that JavaScript code to no longer apply to that markup. And now your, your component, you know, or your, your widget has broken. And so now with web components, we just put in a tag, you know, jQuery dash date picker, you know, instead of, an input tag with some arbitrarily named ID or class, which then we hard code in our JavaScript code, right? We have a jQuery date picker constructor function, basically, or if you're assuming ES6 class. And, you know, you put the hooks there. And for a normal user, you don't even have to, like a consumer of that, perhaps you don't even have to touch or write any JavaScript to make that jQuery date picker actually render in the page. You just put the tag there, right? Sure. Does that make sense? That makes sense. Yeah, are we going to like see an article from you here soon called uh, Selectors Found Harmful? <laughs> I've kind of recently came up with that phrase, selector-based programming. So I actually just gave a talk kind of about some of this stuff at Manhattan JS in New York last week. And so I'm still kind of crafting my thoughts around it, but I definitely intend on giving more talks in the future about this and writing up something on my non-existent blog. I want to push back a little bit on that. I mean, did you ever work with Prototype before jQuery came out? Yeah, uh, yeah, I did briefly in the Rails world. Yeah, because uh, a lot of the selector stuff, I mean, it really simplified a lot of things back in the day. I, I'm not arguing that there aren't better things now, but... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm not saying that, like, selector-based programming was something we never should have done. I think it was part of the evolution of web development. Yeah. But I think now we are grown-ups and we deserve better tools. And so I think of custom elements and web components as like the grown up tools. Like we've, yeah. we, we deserve nice things as web developers and these are nice things. Right. And so I want to feel like we can improve the engineering, you know, that we're doing on the web. And I think this is a move in the right direction. I can live with that. 
You could also title it uh, Selectors Are Dead, Long Live Web Components. <laughs> <laughs> you could title it like uh, a BuzzFeed article too, like no, 10 facts gonna... you didn't know about web components. It's got to be an upworthy thing. He tried to use so selectors much, and so what much, happens next? Yeah, so much link baiting. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not much of a link baiter, but I still have uh, room to uh, improve in that area. So we'll see. <laughs> I know that Aaron had a question he mentioned in the channel. Yeah, I wanted to ask... So recently I ran into this on a project I was working on and it was, it's a different framework, a competitor framework. And I, I found the need to break out of the framework to get some stuff done fast. Like I found that the, the data binding was slowing me down and sure. that the constant watching was kind of killing my performance. Well, you've, you've just given away what framework. <laughs> so something that's totally like that you sometimes have to do in Ember. And we actually have like really simple ways of doing that as well. There's this thing called the group helper, which I wrote, which basically lets you like change the kind of like aggregate. I would say it changes the level of granularity of data bindings so that you're not like data binding every little thing to the DOM. You kind of like define groups of the DOM that would re-render together rather than like, you know, re-rendering every little piece. And there's also things like unbound, you know, like in Ember where you can say like, actually don't bind this because I might just manually re-render it myself because I'll know like when it needs to happen. And then there's also like Ember is very much like built upon, you know, a very similar to backbone view layer. So you can ultimately just like have an Ember component that is just rendering itself completely. It could like build DOM you know, itself, it could build up a string of HTML and inject it itself, handle your own events. Like Ember is very much layered in such a way that it's very easy to drop down a layer and like just do things yourself. Yeah, my, So uh, that's totally natural in the Ember world. But okay. ideally, you don't have to do it. And that's kind of, again, like why HTML bars is a thing, right? Because I've had to do that stuff in the past. And every time I do it, I like miss features that I like that made me so much more productive than like, you know, jQuery style, you know, programming. But the fact that you can do it very easily is nice, right? You can always yeah. resort back to what you know, you know, will work. Yeah. So do you guys have guidelines of when people would drop out? Because I've only ever had a couple needs to and, and it was with like performance based. Do you guys have? I mean, some... it's usually purely with performance. Okay. And, you know, like, of course, like when you're integrating third party libraries like jQuery plugins or whatever, you're, of course, like, kind of dropping down there, you know, or things like D3 as well. You know, you kind of drop yeah. down, let three maybe render your render part of your graph. And because, you know, it needs to do like some complex transitions and you kind of just wrap that up in an Ember component. And then you're able to just reason about it at that level. So, for example, right now um, I'm consulting at Netflix, helping them build their first Ember app, which is this really complex data visualization tool for their infrastructure. There's actually like a article on their uh, tech blog. If you look for like improving operational insights or whatever, Netflix, like you'll see some mock-ups for the thing we're building and it's insane. It's insanely complicated. But the great thing is that, so we've had all custom like charts that we needed to render and we use D3 to do that. But the nice thing is that we've been able to actually take that D3 code that may or may not be doing DOM generation and put that inside of a component. And then we can reuse it in different parts of the application without ever having to like worry about how it actually was rendering itself, right? And we've also got another strategy for like, actually we use handlebars templates to actually build SVG. And so we actually have like data bound SVG in the app. And so we use D3 to do, to add some like, to do things just like scale or you know, domains or like compute axes and like maybe do a little bit of rendering. But most of the SVG is actually built declaratively using handlebars. And that is like a massive productivity boost for our like data viz guy. He's able to, Jeff, I know he's going to be listening. So shout out to Jeff Bush and Netflix. He's part of the reason I actually came on. He was like, why aren't you on JavaScript Jabber? I'm like, okay, I'll go on JavaScript Jabber. Uh, so, um, <laughs> you will go on. <laughs> so Jeff has actually like been doing some really interesting and kind of pioneering work with like D3 and Ember components. I'm not going to steal his thunder. He's going to be talking about it more and uh, at meetups and I think we'll be writing a blog post, but there's some really cool stuff that we've been able to do. And we've, I think, you know, the team at Netflix has 
kind of been amazed at how fast we've been able to build this thing by using some of these layering techniques, you know, like simplifying, you know, the data viz guy gets to write the D3 code, and then all the other application developers just ha- get to think in, you know, higher level web components effectively, right? And then we're able to, you know, get the job done a lot faster that way than having to, you know, duplicate all that kind of imperative DOM building and D3 code everywhere. But anyways, I feel like I might have gone on a little tangent there. But yeah, the original question was basically, are there guidelines? I would say we don't really have guidelines for doing that. Usually these things come out of like somebody mentioning they're having performance problems. And then we say, you know, we give them a few of the options that, you know, are the higher level options. And then if they're like, oh, no, that's not going to work. Then we say, you know, oh, well, and did insert element or something or in the render method, just build the strings yourself, you know, or build the DOM yourself. And uh, yeah. folks like Discourse, the, the uh, big open source forum software company, they actually use this in a few areas where they need really tight, where they have hot code, right? Hot rendering code that's everywhere. And so they're helping out with HTML bars and they're looking forward to actually being able to replace, like get rid of that code because we don't think it's actually going to be optimal for them to do that anymore because HTML bars will end up being faster for them. So we'll see. I want to get into a little bit more basic stuff with Ember. Sure. The first question, though, that I have is more conceptual, I guess. I remember I was talking to Yehuda Katz a while back, quite a while back, when to do MVC was, you know, kind of being talked about a bit more than it is now, I guess. And uh, he said that the to-do app really wasn't the best app to show off what Ember's capabilities are. And yeah. I, I can see that, you know, a lot of these solutions probably could all cover the same 60% of the problem space out there. And then they really shine in other areas. So I'm a little curious as to what apps you feel like Ember is really super well disposed toward. And then I'll have another question after that. I mean, I think that ultimately... You know, when you're talking about like a framework, frameworks value starts paying off the larger the application gets, right? And the thing that I think Ember is really good at is enabling teams of engineers to be productive together and not have to make as many decisions that they would have to make otherwise. And so for me, the big story about Ember is like productivity of teams, especially on like larger projects. And I would say, like, ultimately, Ember is a pretty, you know, we used to think, like, we used to say, and we still say, like, Ember's for ambitious web applications, but I've seen applications built large and small, and it's actually been, like, really beneficial, I think, for all types of apps. Uh, we see things like NBCNews.com, which is, like, a news site. They're using Ember, and, like, they've got a really cool, you know, kind of new, rich internet application-y type uh, news browsing app. And, you know, with things like Bustle, where it's a more traditional kind of looking content site that's just like blazing fast because of the ability to do rendering client side and like prefetch images and data extremely easily. So I don't know if that's really the answer you're looking for. I mean, ultimately, I think there's still not a great comparison out there I've heard rumors of there being like a GitHub clone being written in client-side frameworks. I just did a bunch of trainings across the country and we built Gmail in a couple days. And it was funny when my buddy Trek and I, who's also on the core team, I think he's actually been on. He's been on the show, yes. Yeah. When we were preparing for the class, we were like, okay, Gmail, this seems like a sufficiently complicated application to build. And then we built it in two hours with Ember. And we were like, oh, geez, what are we going to do for the rest of the class? And, you know, I think it's just productivity is just, I could not imagine building some of these complex web applications without it now. And I think that basically the problem that we still have yet to perhaps solve in Emberland is lowering the learning curve to such an extent where people can quickly get a grasp for those productivity, like they can see that those productivity gains are coming or that they're there. And I think like right now you spend a day on your own trying to learn Ember and you might not feel that yet. I don't know. It ultimately depends on, you know, the person's existing experience level. But I've come away doing these two day training classes and like people's minds are blown. I mean, these and these are even already experienced Ember developers. There's I think everybody was kind of shocked at how productive we were able to be in, in the two days. And I think, you know, I, I keep hearing, you know, obviously I live in a bubble, 
but I keep hearing, you know, folks who have used other frameworks and then come and learn Ember and they are shocked at, you know, how much more productive they are with it. And so really the, the trick is having a good way of sharing that experience with the general programming community. And so my way of helping in that regard is to do training classes and to build screencasts. And so I'm taking a little bit of a break from consulting to work on a software product. And I'm also going to be resuming production of some screencasts at my site, embercasts.com. And so my hope is that with enough of a bunch of these uh, small, like 10, 15 minute screencasts that kind of show how to do one thing really well, you know, enough of a library of those things will start helping in that regard. And also, we're always trying to improve our documentation and stuff and give presentations and, and make things simpler and, and, and whatnot. So, so I don't know, I think that's pretty much the main challenge we have today. The other question I have is, and this is just recognizing that we have a lot of developers that listen to the show who are beginners, who aren't as familiar with kind of the whole scene around JavaScript. So can you just give the nickel tour of kind of the basic features and principles behind Ember so those folks can understand what it is and what exactly we're talking about here? Yeah, sure. So basically, Ember is a framework, a full, you know, uh, a framework that basically includes everything that we think you need to build a complex web application. And so that basically starts at the router. We very much care about web applications having great URL support and not breaking the back button and stuff. So you basically start with the concept of a router and you start by defining the templates related to those routes. And then you start, you know, adding in like the data for that those templates need and you can start adding in web components. And the nice thing that I think the, the unique thing about the Ember experience is that there are conventions for how things are done. And those conventions enable you to reduce the amount of code that you end up writing. It basically enables the framework to do more work for you so that you can, you know, reach these kind of new levels of productivity that you might not have been able to reach before because you're spending all your time writing a lot of glue code. And so, for example, one easy to describe feature in this regard is that if you're using an Ember data library like Ember Data, when you're defining your routes, you can define your dynamic segments of your routes, you know, like posts slash colon post underscore ID. And so Ember will assume because you've called that part of the URL post ID that you want us to go fetch you a post, you know, using your post model definition, a post of the ID that's in the URL, right? And so you don't have to write that code anymore. And so it enables kind of like, uh, and also, for example, when you're, you know, creating routes, like if you when you were creating your posts route, you know, just put a string in one place in your router definition. And now, you know, when you uh, want to create the template for that, you just create posts.hbs, a handlebars file. And when you want to decorate the model data, you create a posts controller. And, you know, if you need to add some event handling or whatever, you just create a posts view. And so a lot of this stuff gets automatically generated for you if you don't define it yourself. But when you want to define it, you basically don't have to do any thinking about what it should be called and where it should go. Because Ember kind of, you know, very similar to Ruby on Rails, you know, gives you that framework for how your application should be organized and eliminates a lot of those trivial decisions that you might find yourself making doing, you know, application development. Do you think that is a good response to your <laughs> for the for the beginners? Yep. Okay. So it sounds like we're running a little short on time. So do you mind if I mention a few specific things? About oh, please do. Yeah, please ahead. do. Cool. I'm very long winded. So if you guys let me talk, I'm going to talk forever. So yeah, that's the story with, you know, Ember and conventions and those conventions enabling more productivity. But the coolest thing that's happening right now in the Ember community is our work in the build tools arena. And so the thing that I think has brought even more productivity and is going to keep bringing more and more productivity to the Ember development story is Ember CLI. And so Ember CLI is basically the evolution of a project by fellow core team member Stefan Penner 
called Ember App Kit. And basically, the Ember App CLI is kind of like this node-based command line tool. You create your Ember app just by typing Ember new and the name of it. Then it kind of creates you the directory structure that your project needs. And then, you know, you start inserting files in there and it's automatically doing efficient, like incremental rebuilds of your JavaScript or your templates and your CSS. So Ember CLI was built on top of Broccoli, which is this new asset pipeline system written by an Ember community member, Joe Liss. And she's done a great job basically finding a new kind of like simple way of defining the like inputs and outputs of a build system that has made writing plugins, maintainable plugins, very simple. So that we've got a nice proliferation of Broccoli plugins now out there for doing everything you could imagine, basically. And Ember CLI is also, since we're now going to have a story, a conventional story for our build system, now this is going to enable us to actually start doing intelligent building of Ember itself in your applications. So you're only going to have parts of Ember in your applications that you actually use. So you can kind of think of this as like a tree shake. So as you start, you know, as you are starting to use pieces oh, of Ember, they actually awesome. end up in your build output, but you don't get the parts of Ember that you're not using, which is really cool. And Sounds then also, up, frankly, <laughs> that's awesome. So this is this is the vision, right? Because we want Ember to have features that are important, but we don't necessarily want every consumer of Ember or every user of Ember to have to pay for those features in their build output, right? And so having like a nice standard build them enables us to kind of do this once for everyone and then everybody's apps benefit. Oh, oh, by the way, I forgot to mention that HTML bars reduce, removes our jQuery dependency as well. So, so that's a nice aside while we're talking about file size. But then the other cool thing is that we're also enabling, we're going to be able to look at your router definitions. And actually when you go, you know, you're going to be able to actually have separate JavaScript builds for sections of your application. So if you have a really large application and you don't want to like load the admin interface or you don't want to load other tabs, you know, the JavaScript of other tabs, you know, when you go to your like initial, you know, landing page, Ember CLI is actually going to enable you to kind of do that without, you know, very like simple declarative way. You'll be able to basically just say like, yeah, lazily load this JavaScript for the, you know, the admin section of the application. And then it'll just automatically load the JavaScript when you actually navigate to that part of the page. So that's going to bring a whole nother like story for, you know, performance, like load initial loading time, you know, uh, reducing the JavaScript payloads. And it also is going to enable potentially an easier way of splitting up large Ember applications into separate repositories and kind of bringing them together. Uh, because we're starting to see in this new, you know, in this new world of, you know, building ambitious Ember applications, like we're starting to see companies with people like 50 people working on the same application. And it's really hard to do that in one repository. And so we hear from our big users, like, please give us an easy way of like splitting up our app into, you know, different chunks that, you know, different teams can maintain, but then bring it all together, you know, on our deploy process, right? So that it's actually one deployed app still so that, you know, other parts of the application can deep link, you know, over to other parts of the application easily. And then the other big thing that's really exciting about all, about Ember CLI is that it's enabling us to move the Ember community onto ES6 modules and other, hopefully, ES6 and ES7 features in the very near future. So right now, Ember CLI uses the ES6 module transpiler written by my buddy Brian Donovan at Square. And now in his effort to migrate him and his teammates off of CoffeeScript, he started a new project called ES Next which is built on top of some of the great translation stuff that Ben Newman at Facebook has been doing, like Recast and Regenerator. And so he's actually enabling you with ES Next to start writing JavaScript code that uses, you know, features like the fat arrow and rest args and generators and all this stuff and kind of packaging it into a very simple and easy to use transpiler. And so those things are going to be you know, hopefully uh, in the near future built in Ember CLI. So you're going to actually be able to start writing, you know, this kind of future proof JavaScript just, you know, by default, if you choose to, which is really cool. And then finally, last but not least, we want to have the hands down best story in the JavaScript world for sharing code across Ember applications. 
And Ember CLI is going to enable us to do that by basically, you know, we're going to come up with a conventional way of redistributing Ember related code. And Ember CLI is going to know how to compile that code. And so you're going to see, hopefully, by the end of this year, you're going to start seeing like Ember components become a big deal because they're going to be so easy to build, redistribute and use. And this is something that even like single organizations want, you know, these big companies that have multiple Ember apps, they want to be able to easily share code across them. And so that's another big feature of Ember CLI. So yeah, these are big life-changing things for, I think, uh, experienced Ember developers. There's a lot of pain points around the build tools system. We kind of went down the grunt path and grunt watch was just epically slow in large applications. And Broccoli has solved that. And the lazy loading stuff, ES6 features, ES7 features, and like component and code sharing is our big deals and a little more cumbersome than we'd like them to be. So we've got those all on our, in our sites and we're, we're going to nail them hopefully this year. So that's all exciting stuff. You're getting me all hyped up. I know. Yeah, like too. the MC at a concert or something. Like, <laughs> crowd. You, I, you. I, I have been known for my hyping abilities. Um, <laughs> So yeah, and then, so I just want to talk a little bit, like, this isn't super Ember related, but I just want to touch on another thing. Like, I mentioned translation a second ago, and I want to talk about what I see, one of the things, not Ember specific, that I see happening in the JavaScript community, and I think is going to become kind of the future of building JavaScript apps. That's transpilation, right? Like, we've been doing transpilation already with things like CoffeeScript, and now in the Ember community and I think it's fair to say in the uh, Angular community, with starting with Angular 2.0, you're going to start seeing these the big frameworks adopting strategies that you know promote the use of transpilation. And so, transpilation is you know basically taking you know an example of that is taking what is future syntax and translating it down to syntax that works today in the browser, right? And so I've kind of started referring to, but transpilation is actually really hard to do. It's hard to transpile with high fidelity. And that's the key. High fidelity transpilation is extremely difficult to do. And so we're kind of going to be in a world, I think, of transitional transpilation, where there's going to be solutions that help you write future-proof code and be more productive because you can use this, these new syntaxes. But the browser, that you're not going to actually want to transpile that code to exactly what the semantics are of it in the specs. And so the example that I've been using lately about this is that is let. And so there's a couple, like Tracer is the big name in town. Um, I think that's what Angular is going to use for its dependency injection stuff. Tracer actually supports a whole bunch of great future features in the language. But one of the things that it does, and one of those new features is let. And let is basically a, you know, for, I'm not going to do it justice, but basically it's a newer version of var that reduces a lot of the complexity and jankiness around vars in JavaScript. And so it gives you block scoping, right? Yes, block scope basically is the easy way of describing it, I guess. So to implement let accurately is actually very tricky to do, like in runtime, but Tracer does it. And I've actually seen folks using lets with Tracer and like shipping that code, but it actually like a let in Tracer transpiles to like a 30 line statement that includes like try catches and like it's crazy stuff and so i'm a little disappointed that they're like trying to kind of reach high fidelity because i think the folks uh like ben newman and brian donovan who are kind of you know i would say like more on the like you know we're kind of application builders or like you know tools builders and we don't have any interest in like seeing things like let actually be high fidelity you know, transpiled, because it does not end up as something that is actually usable in production. You don't want your every variable declaration to be like 30 lines of transpiled output. That's insane. But what you want is you want to be able to start using that syntax. And the trick is that ultimately, it should probably just be something that looks like it should basically just be an alias for var, right? But you want a tool like JS hint to verify that you're actually using it correctly. Right. And so you don't necessarily want to 
transpile it in the exact uh, runtime uh, that you want, but you want to basically get an error from your tools like JS Hint. Yeah, I think maybe though you have to look at the goals of the project. Like I know the tracer compiler goal is to inform the standards bodies about sure. things, not necessarily to be production shipped. The sad thing though about that is that it seems like it is being adopted as a way of building production applications. And so I'm a little scared and I tend to actually like having some productive conversations with folks that work on Tracer and not just be like in the background talking smack about it. I've met with like everybody involved in web component. I've been meeting with like the Angular team to talk about interoperability and stuff like that. So I try to be a good actor sure. system and actually help move everything forward together because we're all in this together. Sure. Yeah, totally. I, it's a little bit unfortunate because ES Next actually has a link saying, if you want a more robust project, go to Google Tracer. But I do think they have different yeah. goals. Yeah. And I wish that that was more explicit in at least the different projects. I know Tracer is very explicit that like, hey, we're here to experiment and inform bodies, you know, and that's why you see things like types make it in their own flags sure. and, and things like that. Yeah, no, that's really cool. I think ultimately, though, like, so I guess what I'm saying is that this is very new still, right? And so ultimately, I think, though, this is where we're going to be going, because you're going to want to use these new features in the language, but you're not going to be able to only target your browsers that have them, right? Because like right now, for example, nobody has ES6 modules, right? And you kind of <laughs> want to start using. Them. And so we need a strategy. And I think we found it in this, like, what I'm referring to as transitional transpilation. We found a strategy basically for enabling us to be pr more productive today and still like write the code of tomorrow, right? And, you know, do so in a production ready way. So I would say keep your eye on ES Next. And I'm, I'm partially saying this just to put more pressure on Brian to keep shipping great work there. And if you're like in the coffee script or whatever, and before a lot of the syntactical stuff, I think you're going to like ES Next if you're interested in kind of adopting, you know, the standard JavaScript and where the language is ultimately going. I don't know how much of a future proof story coffee script is going to have. I think it's going to have a tough time keeping up to date with the new language features. I just wanted to point out translation and say, I think that awesome. we're going to be doing it for the next. I think that basically it's something you're going to start seeing happening more and more this year. And hopefully we're going to have something, you know, like ES Next that is rock solid, ready for your production use. And folks are going to start being able to use that today. And it's probably going to last us for the next five years in the web development world, right? Like hopefully less because we'll have evergreen browsers. But ultimately, you know, we can start building future-proof JavaScript today using those techniques. So I've been thinking about this recently. This is I'm glad you talked about it. This is a thought I've had as I, when I learned about Angular doing this. I at first I threw up in my mouth a little bit, and then I cried myself <laughs> to sleep. But the more I think about it, the more I've kind of been accepting that this is the way things are going to be. So when I heard you talk about it, Ember's thinking about it, I'm like, okay, I think this is the way things are going to have to be, so that we can write more efficient syntax and more maintainable code, you know, with classes and stuff and have it compile back into something that, you know, even, you know, the worst of our users are going to be able to run. So I'm actually really glad that you brought that up and talked about it because I think it is something that all the JS Jabber users need to start kind of thinking about. And every JavaScript programmer needs to start embracing that this is a thing that's going to happen and it's going to be around for quite a while. So, yeah. So actually, there's one other point that I want to point out, which is the great thing about and it's it's related to what you guys are saying about Tracer. The thing that's great about having a good like transpilation tool is that we can start actually as new features are getting proposed, we can actually start trying to use them in our application, right? And if they don't work, we can use that to give feedback to the, you know, standards bodies, right? And so it's like, the idea is like, we should keep we should stop having to wait on the browser vendors to actually ship features before we can start using them or True. start experimenting with them. And so that's, again, like like you said, the point of Tracer. But I think we want something like that somewhere in the middle ground, right? Somewhere between like very academic-y, like we want to, you know, really explore this from like a we're trying to still propose the spec type of approach, I think, sure. you know, to a like, OK, here's what you're saying we should add to the language. Let me actually test that out in my applications very easily, you know, and, and see how I feel about it. Yeah, I agree. I think we're probably pushing our listeners a little too far on the time, <laughs> but I'm really glad you brought up those things. 
I'm good with going a little bit long. I think we're okay. But let's go ahead and get to the picks and just let folks know that we do have the JavaScript Jabber forum open, which is incidentally using Discourse, which is written in Ember and Rails. So if you have any questions for Eric, uh, we're going to invite him to the forum and hopefully he'll be around to answer them. Yeah, absolutely. Would love to. All right. Well, let's go ahead and do the picks. Aaron, do you want to start us off with the picks? Yeah, I just have two picks. Um, they're both conferences. One is jschannel.com, and jschannel is a series of JavaScript conferences in India. I guess it's it's a pretty successful chain, and they have you know three or four hundred people at each conference, which seems uh, like a lot of people at each conference to me. So they asked me to keynote, and it sounds like it's you know one of the most coolest conference I could ever go to. So I'm really excited about JS Channel. Another one is IO Extended. After Google I.O. coming up, as people are watching it live, there's an opportunity to watch them where you're at in your own location through these series of I.O. watching parties called I.O. Extended. And this year, it's actually going to be pretty cool. The one in Utah and, and a lot of them around the United States and such were offered a chance to do like a new Android watch hackathon and they they'll be giving um a couple android watches to kind of give away as prizes so if you in your area if you want to go and watch io with a group of people and also participate in a hackathon these io extendeds look for the one year area they're going to be pretty cool so those are my two picks awesome merrick what are your picks i have one pick and that is an album by an artist named atmosphere and it's a new album called south siders if you're into hip-hop check it out it's really good i liked it a lot and Jameson just put in the chat that he's from Minnesota, represent, which yep. is very true. <laughs> Jameson doesn't sound like he's from Minnesota. No, he's dude. No, I, I left the accent there. Okay. Jameson, what are your picks? I have two. One is a thing called Repo Electric. It's a video of this guy live coding audio visualization in Emacs and Clojure. And it's ridiculous. So he's basically performing music, but in Emacs and creating just these crazy soundscapes and sweet particle effects and stuff in the background while he's doing it. It's really great. It's like five minutes long, but it kind of blew my mind, all the stuff that you could do. And my next pick is a selfish one. It's the result of a hackathon that my company did last week. We uh, built a little Chrome extension for creating animated GIFs out of Twitch TV streams. If that doesn't mean anything to you, then you won't care. And if it does, it's super cool. So go to twitchgift.i.tv and uh, tell me how about all the ways it's broken. I think the repo's open source too, so I should post that. Those are my picks. That's cool. I could see Twitch Gift being like a complete pivot for i.tv. i.tv is like, forget all this other stuff. We're doing Twitch that's, Gift That's now. how I pitched it, man. And for three so days it was. Good. And then the hackathon ended. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Joe, what are your picks? All right, so I got three picks. The first one is totally, completely awesome. It's called Sabertron, and it is laser tag with swords. Joe, I love you, man. Dude. (laughs) Your picks every time. (laughs) And they they even say this on their site. They're like, why is this not a thing yet, right? Like my son and I, he loves Star Wars, and we're always sword fighting. And, you know, LARPers are always sword fighting. Why is there not a way to sword fight with foam or, you know, non-hurdy, stabby, stabby swords and keep score and have, you know, real fun. So I'm so excited about this Kickstarter. So it's called Sabertron. Uh, my next pick is going to be an extremely self-serving pick of my latest course, which is a course on Bauer that just barely came out today, in fact, which is really funny because my course before this came out on my wife's birthday and this course came out on my daughter's birthday through no planning of my own. Of course, I have no control. It takes some weeks to publish a course once I submit it. But if you're interested at all in learning about Bauer, then I've got my course on Bauer that's now out on Pluralsight. And the last pick is going to be a book series by a guy named E.E. Knight who writes a couple of really cool series. This is called the Vampire Earth series, which is a really cool non-vampire-y vampire takeoff. It's like a post-apocalyptic world where vampires rule everything, and but they're not like your typical type vampires, and it's just a really cool series of books. I absolutely love it. It's like eight novels or something, and I'm like halfway through. Just absolutely have enjoyed every minute. I've read every word. And that's my picks. Awesome. I've got one pick. Well, two picks. So one pick is, and I think Joe picked this on the show before, maybe not, but I just got into the sci-fi series uh, Warehouse 13. Been enjoying it. Kind of a fun show. That's all I really have to say about it. And then my other pick, somebody mentioned a REPL. I think it was Jameson during you know talking about the video. We were doing the little schemer for the study group that I run out here 
and we were looking for good options for REPLs for that. And I ran across this site called REPLIT. It's R-E-P-L dot I-T. And they've got uh, REPLs, which are the command line executable environments, if you're not familiar with what a REPL is, for all kinds of languages. And so if you want to get in there and just kind of fiddle around with one language or another, you can just go over there and pick the one that you want to uh, mess around with and try it out. So those are my picks. Eric, what are your picks? So I've got three picks. The first one is the uh, videos from EmberConf. So we just had our first big Ember conference back in March, and all the videos have been released now, and there's a ton of great content. So if you're interested in learning about Ember, you should check out those videos. The next one is already mentioned, uh, Square's ESNext library, the, the transpilation stuff. And then the third is this really cool library that Trek and I, uh, mostly Trek wrote for our training class called Pretender. And basically Pretender gives you very easy client side Ajax mocking with an express style API. So you kind of get to like feel like you're writing a little web server inside of your JavaScript, your, your client side JavaScript app. And it makes it ridiculously simple to like build up, you know, mock out a little API with some dynamic behavior rather than using something like fixtures. And so this is kind of, you could think of this as like a really nice DSL for something like sign-on or whatever. How I never actually know how you're supposed to pronounce that library. But yeah, I am not a big fan of the API for it, but Pretender actually makes it dead simple. And it's kind of cool. It's using the, uh, the route recognizer library from Ember's router to actually parse the little like URL segments and stuff and query parameters. So, so definitely check that out if you're into like prototyping and also for writing your tests. Pretty awesome. That's so cool. So I think the ultimate evolution with that is I want to actually make it easy to start with your fake API that just has generated data or whatever on your client and then actually figure out how we can reuse some of that code to actually build a real actual server uh, using Node or something. So yeah, that's my ambition for the project, but I'm happy just to have a really nice, simple way of defining fake APIs. And so yeah, it works with like gets, posts, puts, and deletes and all that. So it's pretty handy. So check it out. Awesome. I'm still looking at Sabertron. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, uh, it was great to have you on, Eric. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for having me. Hopefully, you know, you can have me on the next six times or so, and then we can equal out the uh, Angular coverage. <laughs> oh, we had it coming. <laughs> <laughs> I saved it for the end. <laughs> all righty. Well, I think we're done. I've got to go wrangle some kids, so I'm going to take off. But uh, I really appreciate you coming on and taking the time. Yeah, yeah my pleasure. Great. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit c a c h e f l y dot com to learn more. It won't matter anyway, the fear.